welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me at the other end of the line is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. And hello, everybody. I hope you're having a good day. It is a beautiful day here again, and uh, I'm happy for that. (laughs) That's good. And here for you is Iowa, right? Yes. Yes. And today, here for me is Texas, and we'll find out where our guest is today. Do you want to introduce her, Mom? Yes, I would like, it would be my pleasure to do that. Our guest this morning is Katrina Kettle, the author of Morning in This Broken World, which is a book we're going to be talking about. But she has written four uh, novels for adults and also one novel for young adults. And her most uh, famous, probably, novel is uh, Kindness of Strangers because it was the winner of the 2006 Great Lakes Book Award for Fiction. She teaches creative writing at the University of Dayton and um, and for words worth writing connections. She lives near Dayton. And this this book is outstanding because it's it's about us. It's about right now, you know, in this time. <laughs> and <laughs> so we, 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 yeah, and we've talked about a lot of books about, you know, the past and <clears throat> the world wars and so forth. But this is right now. And I'm just delighted to, to have this book. Contemporary fiction, it. definitely contemporary. Welcome to Writer's oh, Voices, yes. Katrina. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for that beautiful intro. I'm so glad you felt that way. Yeah. And I also appreciated the, you know, we talk about diversity of characters and how important diversity and inclusion is. But you go, what we don't often talk about is diversity of age range of characters mm. in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You, you're covering quite a few bases here <laughs> with, with yes, the characters in, sure. in Morning in a Broken World. It's, um, you know, from a young girl to someone, an elderly woman, and pretty much everything in between. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, Ren's 11 when the story starts, and... Vivian is 74 when the story starts. And yeah, then there's a 15 year old and a 30 year old. And like you said, everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, tell us what inspired, well, why don't you give us a little synopsis of the, the characters and what this book is about and then what, what inspired it for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, and Kate, people might, hate this, but it is set during the pandemic. (laughs) And I was terrified that no one would want to read that. But um, the pandemic turns out to be the catalyst for the story, but it's not the focus of the story. So don't try not to be put off by that. But we have um, four point of view characters. And we start with Vivian, who's a very recent widow. She's living in um, a retirement community in assisted living where her husband needed services. He died and had dementia for a long time. And she's fine. She could live independently. She's trying to decide what to do. She's tried to return to their home that they still own, but it feels very haunted for her. It's very, she, she can live independently, but it's more of the emotional problem of going back there. It's, she's scared of herself when she's there alone. And, um, so she's actually at the start of the story, um, considering whether it's worth it to be here at all. And um, then, so she's our first point of view. And 
then we meet Luna. And by by be here at all, you mean like on earth? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. To keep living at all. Yes. Yeah. Um, I guess I shouldn't use (laughs) euphemisms. (laughs) Tell what it is. You know, she's considering ending her life on the very first page. Um, And then Luna knocks on the door. It's a nursing assistant that she adores who took beautiful care of her husband, Jack. And she discovers that Luna is recently separated, about to be evicted. And Luna has two children, Ren, who's 11, and has cerebral palsy and is a motorized wheelchair, in a motorized wheelchair, and a son named Cooper, who's 15 and very angry, kind of struggling with how he's supposed to be who he is in this world we live in. Um, Vivian's never met Cooper, but she devises this plan that, like, we should all end up together. We should, you should come with me to my house. You need help. But she also needs help. And the pandemic is what gives it the urgency and actually makes them consider this because Vivian discovers that the assisted living community is about to go into total lockdown. And the idea of being isolated in this apartment where her husband died is just too much. She's like, I have to go. You guys need a place. Come with me. And so they become this kind of found family. And it's rocky at starts that they really truly become family. And all four of them were kind of isolated and guarded before covid each of them is wearing a sort of armor they've built that they may not even be aware of. And it's only in this coming together and helping each other in these various ways that they're able to kind of shed that armor and emerge as their more authentic selves by the end of the story. So some of the, the inspiration, it's funny that you brought up the age range right away because that was actually one of the first inspirations I started working on this story in 2019, way before COVID. Well, not way before. Oh, wow. But um, <laughs> late, tw- late 2019. But I was inspired by an NPR story I'd heard about these facilities, um, mostly in Europe, but it's taking off a little bit in the U.S., where their um, retirement communities or elder care are kind of combining with child care, putting them in the same facilities and integrating services. And I was just fascinated and delighted by this story. And I was like, Ooh, I want to do an intergenerational friendship story. Cause that was the focus of the news story. I'm like, <laughs> I really want to try to do that. And so I had been like sketching out these characters. I'd come up with my Rin, I'd come up with my Vivian, but I was struggling with how do I bring them together? And then Sorry, everybody, <laughs> but it was a happy accident for my book when a global pandemic broke out um, and not to trivialize how horrible it was for so many people. But it was the catalyst to bring them together with that urgency to make it feel like a realistic option for Luna of like, I don't know what else to do. We're going to follow this woman. Right. Um, yeah. 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 And of course, Luna is very resistant to accepting help. Yes, that's part of, that's one of her armor that she wears. (laughs) Right. And also very, um, sort of doesn't see how much help she's giving. Yeah. She's like, she, uh, she undersells herself. Yeah. (laughs) Quite a bit. And I think there are so many people who do that, particularly women who do that where we, and she's just so dug into like, I don't need charity. I don't need help. I can do this myself. And when she realizes she's in a place where she really can't, she feels horrible accepting this help from Vivian. And she is really, that, that, like I said, they all have this armor. Her armor is I can do it. I will figure it out. I can do it. I'm not going to, you know, rely on others. I will do this myself. And it's become almost her 
handicap in the world, um, that it's okay yeah. to accept help. You can ask for help, but, and if that's too hard, you can at least accept it when it's offered. And, um, so she really, she does undersell herself. And then by the end of the story, she too is seeing the value that she has and how, how to better take, better take care of herself. She's not just the caregiver all the time to everyone. It was really, um, fun to get to know the different characters in the book and it, it seemed pretty pretty seamless how you move among the point of view characters but why you know you could have done this from a single point of view from two points of view why or even for even from more because there are some other yeah. very important characters in the book how did you settle and why did you choose yeah, this is kind of a long answer. I hope that's okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. um, just the whole crazy process. Um, when, uh, you know, I was playing around with who they were. And like you said, originally I thought that maybe the neighbors, there's some pretty important neighbors who right. um, they could be voices. Mm -hmm. I was kind of playing with lots of different people. Um, and one of the other inspirations that helped me figure out who I wanted to be, to actually get to tell the story um, was here in Ohio during the pandemic, or especially in the early days when we were in lockdown, early in 2020, our governor would do, his name is, his name is Mike DeWine, and we, it was called Wine with DeWine. Everyone started calling it that because he would address the state every afternoon and people would, everybody was stuck at home and they'd pour a glass of wine and listen to him. And he kept saying, he kept saying, um, we're all in this together. We're all in the same boat. We'll get through this together. And then I saw this meme on Facebook that said, and it was, it was referencing the pandemic and it said, we're not all in the same boat. We are in the same storm. Some of us have yachts, some of us have canoes and some of us are drowning. And I, that really struck oh, me. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, okay, my own pandemic experience was actually a very easy one. I was very fortunate. And for that, I'm very grateful. My job was not in jeopardy. My partner's job was not in jeopardy. We were safe at home. My dad lives in a, a retirement community. They were doing a great job of keeping everyone safe, but he was isolated. And so I thought like, he's in a totally different boat. He's by himself. We had lost my mother in January of 2020. So he was newly alone. Um, I'd already started writing Vivian before this happened. <laughs> um, I know, I know, but he was newly alone in this whole idea of, isolation and grief just seemed like a horrible combination. So I thought about all those people, particularly the elderly, elderly who suddenly found themselves isolated. That was one boat. So I have Vivian in that boat. And then Luna as a nursing assistant is considered an essential worker, but none of them get paid what they're worth for this really important work they do. And in the early days, they were kind of risking their lives. So she's in a totally different boat. Rin with her cerebral palsy, I have a very dear friend who has cerebral palsy who helps me with Ren, and that friend's name is Dara, and Dara was telling me about how her physical therapy was canceled, her occupational therapy was canceled, and, you know, her family members trying to help her with therapy based on videos from the therapist, and it was just, she says it was a nightmare, and her world just got so small, um, it was very difficult, so that's another boat, and then the kids who are suddenly thrust into remote learning, there's kids like Ren who miss the social interaction so much and then characters like Cooper who were relieved to be away from the constant harassment and bullying 
And so I kind of, I was trying to choose specifically who's in, who are in totally different boats, especially different boats from me, a totally different pandemic experience than the one I had. And so that's what helps me kind of narrow down and choose those four. And they also, oh, go ahead. It, I feel like we haven't paid enough attention to the impact that that had on kids oh, yes. of, of that age. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. see it, you know, I teach university level and I'm even seeing it, um, particularly this year. I just feel like those two years where they were sort of, it depends on what school you're in, right? It's a lot of them were a little bit thrown to the wolves and that's not the teacher's fault. The teachers were also thrown no. to the wolves, you know, like here, do this, you know, and with no, with hardly any training and, you know, everybody was doing the best they can, but I really see like a deficit in how they are students. Um, yeah. And I don't know what else to blame it on than those years. And I could be totally wrong, but yeah, they just don't, there's something missing. And I think we're going to be paying for that for a while. Do you see it in their inter- interactions with each other to the social aspect of it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. In, that's you know more than because you can you can make up the academics yes but it's very hard to make up the to to overcome a, a social deficit you know? yes it's and yeah. it's very much how they deal with professors how they just deal with being in a class but it's mostly the social stuff it's not the actual work but just like a student a really good student is there for workshop. I know she's done the work. I've seen her draft. I know she has a story and then she just doesn't turn it in. And when I reach out to her, she doesn't answer emails. And then when I finally managed to reach her, she's like, oh yeah, I just was having a rough day that day. I didn't have the will to like get it together. That's literally what she said to me. And you see stuff like that all the time. They're just, there's just this whole <laughs> different level. It's so hard to explain, but this whole different level of like the importance or any kind of urgency it's a, like nothing really matters because for a couple of years, everything was so vague and like, oh, get it in when you can, you know. And also, they don't, kids don't seem to be that as interested in going places, doing things. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, you, you'd think they could have gone the other way, you know, they were restricted and then when they finally can get out that they want to go do everything. But that's not what I've seen. Yeah, me neither. And maybe some kids have reacted that way, but yeah, it's like there's still it's almost like they have they still have the fear. Yeah. And I, and and who can blame them cuz COVID's still out there. Right. And it's oh, going yeah. through we, our we campus act like, like crazy. It's not. <laughs> we, we act like it's not yeah. and it's not dangerous, but people are still dying. Yes, and it's making a, a big comeback on our campus right now. So Oh, really? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, well, yeah. we'll see what the winter holds in store, but you know, we just kind of soldier yeah. on. <laughs> so. so Katrina, where are you? I am in Springboro, Ohio. It's just a little bit nor- uh, south of Dayton. Okay. All right. Um, so summer, we're still summer. Yes. It's actually a very <laughs> lovely day, like all, heading into autumn kind of summer day where we're, the chair my yeah. favorite. Yeah. Favorite. Yeah. It's only going to barely <laughs> yeah. touch 80. We haven't seen rain in a really long time. So, and I have a big garden, so that's getting a little old, oh. but, um, but otherwise it's a gorgeous day. Yeah. Yeah. The North, I mean, I mean Iowa had a beautiful summer, wouldn't you say mom? Oh, absolutely. We're very fortunate. Yes. Ah, yeah. Yes, we did. And, but Texas, 
man, it was brutal. Yes, it was. <laughs> I was following that. I had some friends there in, in Austin, and I was like, holy cats, those temperatures were crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, I was only here for a couple weeks of that, and then I'm, I'm back here again, and it's in the 90s, which isn't as bad, but, but still, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's still. And I think another reason why people don't want to go anywhere, it's too dang hot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. So, Caroline, how did you, like, did you enjoy reading about a character a little closer to your age? Yes, I did. Uh, I enjoyed, to tell you the truth, I enjoyed every single character in this book. Aww. Because, um, you know, I I experienced the, the, the kindness of of people to get me through the, the pandemic and, and cause I, I don't really go that many places anyway, but the place that I did go, I wasn't able to go to like to church and everything. And so it was, uh, but some of my friends that I didn't really consider close friends, but they reached out to me and wanted to know if I needed some help. And so it was, you know, it was really something I was, I was really kind of amazed at how kind people were. And oh, I'm this, so glad. this book, and the, and this book, this book is everybody should read this book. Believe me, this <laughs> oh. is, because <laughs> I, I'm serious. Because this is this is our time. This is a, this is our history, and we need to understand this, and we need to think about this. And so, I really I highly recommend this book. Oh, that means so much to me, and I'm so glad people helped you. That's one of the things that I was trying to get across in the book is that we need each other and people are mm-hmm. in all these different boats and we have to look out for each other and and they become like this pack you know this this little tribe that takes care of each other and there's other people also helping them out and um and even things like pulling in the cat like looking out for all the beings human and otherwise that um you know right keeping our eye out i kind of want all i think all my books share that theme of found family um, and the idea that we lift each other, that we we need each other, we lift each other, and we are stronger when we're together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was just going to ask you about some like common commonalities between your books because I've noticed that um, traveling light um, was a f- about a former ballerina and. Two of the characters <laughs> in this book yeah, right. have, um, yeah. have <laughs> ballet in their background or in their history, and hopefully, maybe in their future. Yes. And um, and I'm not sure about about the others. So, is uh, ballet one of your loves? Yes, actually, <laughs> and it's it's kind of I I credit it for a lot for writing training. Believe it or not, yeah, I want I, originally I wanted to be a classical ballerina. And I know um, you can't really see me, but I'm way too tall. And, um, you oh. know, you're kind of stuck with your, your essential skeleton, no matter how skinny you try to get yourself. And I tried every trick in the book. But um, I and I, I was okay at it, but that was my real passion. But the artistic director of the Dayton Ballet when I was there was a person who helped me see that some of my best roles had been more acting roles, not so much dance, like in story ballets. And he was like, you should consider theater. And then, so I did that. So when I went to undergrad, I was a theater major. But here's the, and then after three years of being a theater major, I was invited to join an honors tutorial in English. So think about my poor parents. It's like, 
dance to theater to English, just one practical pursuit after the other, right? (laughs) 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 But my parents were amazing. They were so supportive all, all along. But what I realized eventually was all of those all of those disciplines deal with storytelling. And that's, and I finally, I just had to find the way I most wanted to tell a story, but the ballet, I mean, none of it was wasted time. Ballet taught me the incredible self-discipline. You need to be a writer. Um, So I am always, always grateful for those years. And then theater was very much about character development. You know, that creating a character is very similar, whether you're going to put it on the stage or, on the page. I didn't mean to make a cheesy rhyme there, but, um, but um, you know, it's very much the same about what's their motivation, what do they want, what's in their way. You know, all those questions you ask about when you're doing a scene in a script is the same about creating a scene in a story. And so a lot of people are surprised when they find out about my theater background about why don't you write plays? And I'm like, I don't know. I think I will someday, but I've never, all the stories that have come to me, they wanted to be novels. I don't know why, but um, that's where that's where my heart belongs, I think. Well, how about movies? They could oh, be movies. Oh, yes, I would. This that. would be a this would be a good movie. This book would be a good movie. Wouldn't it? Oh, please! Oh, let yeah. Everyone yeah. thinks that. Oh, I th- yeah. I really think um, almost all my books this one would. And I can't help. I adore Meryl Streep, and I'm like, I want her to play Vivian oh. so bad. That's like a dream. That's like a fantasy of like Meryl Streep to be Vivian. <laughs> Oh, she would love it. She would be fantastic she? in that. Oh, she certainly would. I just saw her this week in uh, Only Murders. Oh, I in love the that show. I was about to bring that up. Yes. <laughs> and every time my partner Jason teases me because as we watch it, I'm like, every time she's on screen, I'm like, see, she'd be a great Vivian. And he just pats my knee oh, like, absolutely. I know, honey, I know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I I almost met Meryl Streep once. Ooh. <laughs> I was at a, a gala event in New York um, that was the Skin Cancer Institute, and she was um, there. A lot of stars were there. Juliet Margulies was oh, there. Wow. The the guy who played Tony on Sopranos. Oh yeah, James Gandolfini. Not Tony. Not Tony. Oh. No, not him. Okay. The other, the guy with the silver streak in his hair. Oh, not, yes. So not I know who you mean. Yeah. I can't think of that name. Yeah. Either. Apollo, I think maybe. And, um, and, uh, who else? Um, Christy Brinkley and, you know, all, there were all these stars there. Wow. And then there was my business partner I, and I at the back table. Uh, <laughs> and we were there because, uh, Bath, the president of Bath and Body Works was the keynote speaker and, um, my business does a lot of business with okay. works or manufacturer and um and so we were we were there for that and at the end of the evening i was i was going up to the front of the room to um say hello to the president of bath and body works and as i'm approaching i realize meryl streep standing <gasps> right here the president's over there and i have to make a choice oh. <laughs> And I chose business. Oh, so. <laughs> I get it. I totally get it. You were so close. I was so close. Yeah. She is just fabulous. Yeah, I admire her so much. Yes, I do too. And people used to say I looked like her. So that was the other reason I really wanted to, to meet her. But um, <laughs> I ought to tell this story. There's this kind of unusual guy that I know in Fairfield in Iowa, in this little town, and um, sweet guy, and he, he, 
really, um, he would tell me when he saw me, oh, you look like Meryl Streep. And one time he said, he said, um, you know, I mean that as a compliment. You know, some people don't think she's beautiful, but I do. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? Who doesn't think she's beautiful? They're crazy. I know. I know. <laughs> oh, how funny. Anyway. That is funny. <laughs> yeah. So, um, that's very interesting that, that you bring your ballet into these stories, too. Yeah. And, you know, they say write what you know, which is true to a point. But, like, when you need, like, a profession for someone or something, I'm always, like, and I tell this to students, too. If there's a world that you're immersed in, like a sport or, you know, an art form or something like that, use it. Like, who popul- who can populate a story in that world that you already know so well? But then, of course, you keep learning new worlds, too. But, yeah. So there's always a lot of animals and ballet and things and cooking <laughs> yeah so so you have a cat that that becomes yeah <laughs> becomes an important part in here so you're a cat person i'm an animal person all around like almost uh. any kind i can't na- think of an animal i don't love but yeah i did have a cat very much like our cat ox in the story um who joey uh, anyone who follows me on social media knew about Joey. We lost him two Aprils ago, and um, I had that cat for 17 years, and he was totally my writing assistant. Like, he would drape his 15-pound self over my left arm, whether I was writing by hand or on the computer. didn't matter. <laughs> and it's amazing I don't have carpal tunnel because that was heavy. And he would, if I sat down, it was like some kind of radar went off, and he, no matter where he was, if I sat down to write, he would emerge, sit on my lap, drape himself on the, on, you know, his hands and head over my arm. So he was really <laughs> a part of my writing life big time. And I even have him oh, in the acknowledgments. Yeah. He's in the acknowledgments oh. of this book as like, this is the last book written with him. So he was a part, oh, he was wow. there all through it, but he never got to see it come to fruition. And his little replacement, a little tiny feral cat named Annie, she's, she'll sit on the desk and she sometimes will knock everything off my desk while I'm writing, but she's not, she's not interested in sitting on my lap just yet, but she's coming around. She'll, she'll, she's been with us a little over a year. And, uh, I didn't, I told her she didn't have to be my assistant, you know, but she could apply if she was interested. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. Um, so at what point, so you talked about, you know, you went from theater to English. And at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to write novels? I was, it was, it was strange because I'd never, I'd written all my life, but I wasn't writing story. I mean, I wrote stories as a little kid. So maybe I have yeah. written, I have written stories all my life. It's a lie. Um, but I had never <laughs> thought about writing for real, like writing for publication. I was always reading other people's writing, like as an English major, but that was also excellent training. Um you know, reading really great works and analyzing those. But um, after graduation, I was teaching high school English and theater. And um, so this was in the 90s, early 90s. And, you know, the AIDS epidemic was rampant and the Ryan White scare was on. And the things these students would say about um, gay people or people with AIDS was so shocking to me sometimes. Um, And these are good kids. These are not bad people. They were just ignorant about things like many people were in, in those early days about AIDS. And, um, you know, having been in the, the dance and theater world, like I, 
those two communities were hit so hard in the early days of AIDS. And so I kind of, this sounds really maudlin, but I kind of feel like after, when I graduated from undergrad, I felt like I buried half my address book already. So when these kids would say those oh. things, I was like, I, I suddenly got hold of this story in my head of like, I want to tell a story that puts a human face on AIDS, but I want that story to also be interesting to people who have no problem with a gay relationship. But like, so these kids thought they didn't know anyone who was gay and it was not my place to tell them, you know, the English teacher in the room next to mine, you know, that was not my place to tell them, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, like, you right, know tons right. of gay yeah, people. Yeah. You love tons of gay people. Yeah. You just don't know it. Um, and so traveling light kind of started from that about the, um, I mentioned the artistic director of Dayton Ballet, Stuart Sebastian. He was one of the first people who I knew who had AIDS. Um, and that's when I was a sophomore in high school. And that was before they were even calling it AIDS. They still called it GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. And I think this really hit me far earlier than many of my peers, simply because I was so immersed in that ballet world. And he was this tremendous mentor to me, far beyond dance. And I knew he didn't deserve that death or the the coverage that you could find of it in those early days was so judgmental. And um, so that was, that became my goal. And for some reason, when that story came to me, since you asked, like, when did you know you wanted to write a novel? It was with this yeah. very specific story of like, I, I want it to, for some reason, I wanted it to be a novel. And I had, I started from this place that is the best place you can start from not knowing it was. And that is with a story you were really passionate about telling. And fortunately, because of my dance and theater training, I also knew that every art form has a craft and you need to honor your apprenticeship and learn your craft. So I didn't like rush into things thinking, oh, I'm going to publish a novel in a year. You know, I was like, I need to learn about the craft of fiction. I need to learn how to be a writer. Um, and I set about to like take classes and to study and to read, you know, there's a bazillion and one books on how to write well. And I tried to read all of them. You know, I just really set upon it like I would... <laughs> You know, dancers take class every day. Actors continue to take class throughout their careers. And so it was like I approached it that same way. Um, and I didn't try to pursue publication until I felt like I had really taken the book as far as I could and had other people read it and things like that. So I worked on that book about five years before I even started the process of maybe I'm ready to look for an agent, that kind of thing. Wow. Wow. And so... That when what year was that book published? Two thousand, and here we are, twenty three years later. <laughs> oh boy! I know it's crazy. Time flies. That has to be an error, right? That really wasn't that long ago, but no, it was two thousand. <laughs> um. So, and then what was the next book that you wrote? That was after that? called Two Truths and a Lie. Um, and that the, the I kind of I've kind of always my early books, especially kind of centered around these social issues I really cared about. So that one is really addiction and alcoholism. The main character is a struggling alcoholic in recovery, but that one also is full of animals. I frequently have animal characters who are just as important as the human cast. So that one also has that. <laughs> <laughs> and now the four of your books have been, I believe published by Harper Collins. Yeah. And then you did a young adult novel with source books. Yes. 
Now, is, who is Sourcebooks? They are, they're, they're a little smaller. They're not one of the big fives, but they're amazing. They're based in Naperville, in Illinois, right outside of Chicago. Oh, wow. And, um, but they are, they have offices in New York and they are really growing and they're pretty amazing. They're, they're awesome. And then this book is with Lake Youth, yes. which is Amazon's publishing company. Yes, right? that is correct. Yes. Yeah. And what made you move from HarperCollins to Lake Union? Well, those, that question is always sometimes so like, well, it wasn't necessarily like I'm going to, it wasn't a deliberate choice. I'm going to move from here to here. But you, you know, just because you've been published by someone doesn't mean you will continue to be. And um, they just weren't interested in the stuff I was working on. There was a lot of, um, you know, I kind of, and so there were a lot of changes that happened there and I couldn't get a contract with them. So after a while you do, you know, you start to cast out in different places, but Lake Union has been fabulous to work with. They've been really wonderful. They're doing some, you know, putting out some great books. You know, I get quite a few. um, Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. From them. Yeah. So it's kind of like when I, when I'm looking at books and trying to decide whether to, to um, have them on the show, because obviously I get a lot. Yeah, you get a lot. I'm sure I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one of the ways, you know, there's so many ways to publish now between complete self-publishing to these uh, hybrid Hybrid, publishers, some of which are really good Mm -hmm. and and do some really, I get some good books like She Writes Press is kind of a little bit of a hybrid and they they do some excellent books. Um, It used to be that if someone was with a major or like a university press or something, you know the quality of the writing is going to be good because they've already been through all the filters. Yeah, the gatekeepers. Yeah, they're the gatekeepers. And and so it's it's understandable. Like for me, I, I can't, I don't have time to read every book oh, no. that gets pitched to me. And, and so that was a way of, of knowing ahead of time, okay, at least I know, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy this topic, but the quality of the writing is, is obvious, obviously going to be there. But, and I think that's true with Lake Union too. And, oh, but good. there's more. The, the, the publishing world really has, I feel, expanded. Yes. In some ways it's contracted because a lot of different imprints are parts of the same major companies. But in other ways, there's a lot of good independent publishers. Yes, there are. Oh, there are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like, in a way, the playing field is bigger. It's still, everything's still so hyper competitive. But yeah, I think it's a business in big flux right now. (laughs) Yeah. And I think people are reading as much or more than ever. I do too. Yeah. And even kids. Yes, thank goodness. <laughs> even even with the video games and and um, you know I see they don't. I don't think kids watch. At least the kids I know don't watch TV in the way that we do. They like YouTube. And yeah, the, yeah. Shorter form things and movies. They do. They do like movies. I think, but but they still read. Yes, they reading. do. And hopefully I'm they always will. See that. Yes, me too. Hopefully they always will. Speaking of reading, Katrina, would you like to read oh. from a morning in this broken world? I would love for to. Us? Yeah, I thought I would read from just chapter one. So there's no big explanation or setup needed. So this is the introduction to um, the first point of view character, who is Vivian. And it starts in March 2020. 
Vivian stared at the five amber pill bottles before her on the Formica kitchen counter. Well, what was she waiting for? She had enough pills, but did she have enough guts? She'd been too afraid to do a computer search when she considered helping Jack die. She'd stockpiled these painkillers from various procedures throughout the years, her hysterectomy, Jack's rotator cuff surgery, her trigger thumb surgery. She'd known if she decided to crush them up in pudding to help ease him out of this life of indignity, she'd have to be careful. There could be no search history in case there was an autopsy. She hadn't known. Did they do autopsies on Alzheimer's patients? But Jack had passed, on his own. Her sharp sorrow had been mixed with relief that his confusion and pain were over. And two days after he was gone, she'd finally researched. How much oxycodone will kill a person? She had enough. These pills sang to her. For the months since he passed, through the blur of writing an obituary, planning his service, ordering death certificates, and making the thousand phone calls about life insurance, long-term care insurance and social security, the five pill bottles hummed a siren song to her. From their Ziploc bag inside the canister of cornmeal she never used, there wasn't even a working stove or oven in this assisted living apartment, their serenade rose silvery, soothing, and full of promise. Sometimes the pills made her paranoid. When their harmony was so loud and others were in the apartment, aides checking on her, although she didn't need services, the cleaning lady, the head of social activities asking her to come to this concert or that trivia game, the director herself wondering if Vivian might like to return to the independent living dining room rather than eating alone in her apartment again. Vivian would tilt her head and study their faces. Did they truly not hear it? Were they just pretending? What was stopping her, really? The love of her life was gone. The home they'd created together, their castle, their oasis, now for sale their daughter, their only child. Well, Vivian picked up one bottle and turned it in her hands, hearing the reassuring rattle. Anne-Marie was gone too. She set the bottle down and that same hand went to the buttons of her blouse. Two fingers slipped between the buttons and found the chickpea-sized lump to the left of her sternum, at the top of her left breast. She rubbed her fingertips over it as if it were a worry bee. There was this too, treatment and surgery alone? No, thank you. She had friends. She had dear, dear friends, but nothing seemed to matter. Nothing seemed worth it. She just told this to her neighbors at the house, Stephen and Drew, the boys, as she called them. The boys had known and loved Jack long before his decline. They helped care for Vivian and Jack's house once they'd had to move to Sycamore Place, the sprawling multi-story facility chosen for its continuum of care, the ground floor full of luxury independent apartments, the second and third floors for assisted living apartments, and the dreaded lockdown top floor of memory care bedrooms, each floor with its own dining hall. When Jack passed, the boys were here that very day, but, but it wasn't enough. She felt like a burden. How did people do this for heaven's sake? How was she supposed to get up and go on with this sorrow hanging on her, dragging her down? The grief pinned her to the bed, left her unable to move for days at a time. No, leaving this life was better, truly better. If only Jack would give her a sign. Long ago, they joked that whoever died first would haunt the other. But so far, Jack had been a no-show. And frankly, that pissed Vivian off. I need <laughs> a sign, Jack, she whispered. 
nothing. It figured. He'd always been hopeless at communication, at sharing his feelings. She opened one bottle. She put a pill on her palm and tipped it into her mouth, swallowing it with the last of her coffee gone cold. Ugh. So she'd started it then. With a sudden rush of energy, she turned to the fridge in the tiny galley kitchen and poured herself some ice water. There. Better. She'd need to take more than one at a time or this nonsense would last forever. She poured a wee fistful into her palm, one skittering to the floor. She paused, wondering whether to pop the handful into her mouth before or after she searched for the one gone AWOL on the ugly tile floor. I mean, did she even need it? When there was a knock on her door. She shoved a handful of pills and all the bottles under the stack of newspapers and sympathy cards on her counter. She turned, heart racing, but when no one immediately entered, she knew who it was. Everyone else knocked once, then barged right in, the very thing that had rankled her most when they'd moved here. The only nursing assistant who actually waited for a response was a lovely woman Vivian adored. Miss Vivian, it's Luna. I have someone who wants to see you. Vivian's heart lifted. Not just Luna, but Luna and Wren. Wren, lively Wren. This timing was terrible, but what was half an hour more? Come on in, Vivian called, then grabbed a dish towel and pretended to be wiping her hands. Luna would know. Luna would sense something. Vivian braced herself for it. Luna was the best of all the aides who attended to Jack, Jack's favorite, as well as her own. Luna had treated Jack like the man he'd been once, not the man Alzheimer's had left behind. Vivian requested her and was always disappointed when someone else came in. But the poor woman couldn't work all the damn time. She had her own life, after all, outside of this place and her own daughter. That daughter, Wren, came through the door first. Her mother followed the girl's motorized hot pink wheelchair. The 11-year-old looked up at Vivian with gentle compassion. Oh, that face. Those round cheeks, bright eyes, and deep, long dimples. How much she looked like Anne Marie as a child. As Luna closed the door behind her, something other aides rarely did, leaving Vivian and Jack's lives on display for everyone and anyone walking past, and oh, did people gawk and stare here. Wren looked up at Vivian and said, I'm so, so sorry about Mr. Jack. Thank you, Wren. I am too. Vivian bent to hug her, and the girl hung on, as she did, her hugs long and insistent. Vivian had the fleeting thought, what if Wren had been with her mother and found me dead? Good God, how horrifying. After a moment, Luna rubbed her daughter's back and said, okay, sweetie. But Wren only let go when she was good and ready. Vivian didn't mind one bit. When Wren released her, Vivian breathed deep and felt better than she had for days. And that was Katrina Kittle reading from Morning in this Broken World. How, where did the title come from? Oh, yes. I love Mary Oliver, the poet. And this is a line from her poem, Invitation, which is a poem, the entire poem I adore. But the line says, it is a serious thing just to be alive on this fresh morning in this broken world. And I love that so much because the world is broken. There are a lot of things that are just, yeah. you know, total dumpster yeah. fire. <laughs> but, yep. but. And all of these characters are facing some really hard times and some serious struggles, but it is a serious thing just to be here. And that line has always meant a lot to me. I'm a two-time breast cancer survivor. And um, I just, the idea, like sometimes on the terrible days, like a day of car trouble, when I realize this is it, this is it for this car and I'm going to need a new one. I have this thought of like, I get to be here for this. 
I get to be here for the car trouble, right? Because that story could have gone a whole different way, right? I get to be here for the bad stuff and the good stuff. But all of it, it is just the serious thing just to be here in the midst of all of the stuff in the world. And so that really, like, was what I was really kind of going for with these four coming together. I noticed that uh, that uh, Vivian was very fond of a garden. In fact, it, it, it played a part in her in her leaving you know, finally, she, when she left us. And I mean, that, that, and you are, you are very fond of gardening too. Yes. Right? Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another thing like the ballet that works its way into the story, right? Um, now Vivian's garden is far, far more elaborate than mine. <laughs> so that, and that's the beauty of fiction, right? You can give, I could give her the garden that like, Oh, I'd love to have a garden like that, but that's a lot Bye. of work. But, um, but for me, there is, you know, she was nurturing so much more in when she returns home. She's, you know, there's so many things she's kind of nurturing and cultivating out there in her garden, but she's doing the same thing inside the house with the people, creating this real community mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. among them. Yeah. And then for me, the gardening writing connection is really strong. I can't, when I'm stuck in a scene or I'm trying to figure out what comes next, I can't just sit at the desk and think about it. I have to. I get all my ideas when I'm doing something mindless, like with my, if I'm working with my hands, like out in the garden, weeding or deadheading or pruning, that's when like the stories come alive. So I always joke that I'm growing a lot more than like flowers and vegetables out there. I'm growing the stories too. (laughs) So, but I think that Vivian was, yeah, she, she gets that. And she was, that was her literal way of nurturing things, but she's doing it in many other ways as well. Do you have a, a favorite plant? Oh my gosh. No one has ever asked me that before. The pressure. I do. I do love, oh my gosh, three things came to mind. I do love hydrangeas of almost any kind. They are among oh, my very yeah. favorite. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They are among my very favorite. So, and there's so many different kinds, um, but I also love basil. Um, and I plant so much of it that I actually get to use it as a filler in bouquets, cut bouquets in the house. Cause I just have so much, Whoa. I plant like giant banks of it and I, I adore <laughs> pesto and will eat pesto with almost anything and discovered this summer that pesto mixed into mayonnaise on a BLT is a thing of beauty. <laughs> so there, oh. there's my two cents. <laughs> so I gave you two favorite plants. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, when you were talking about gardening, I just got this flash of always having, you know, always having wanted a walled garden. Mm. And and then I realized it's from a book that I read as a child. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I'm sitting here, of course, we're recording on the computer, The Secret Garden. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's dropped. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I and loved I that book so much. I completely forgotten about that. I'd completely forgotten it. So now I need to read that book again. It was by Francis Hodgson Burnett, and it must have been <clears throat> originally written, what, in the long time ago? Yeah. A long time ago. Oh, yeah. yeah. I bet it was. <laughs> and it's funny. Rin references that book. She talks. She says that's one of her favorites. So when she's looking at the pictures before she goes to the house and she's looking at the pictures of Vivian's garden, she's like, this is like the secret garden. I have to make us go there. So. Oh, oh, 
Oh, it's a tiny gosh. little throwaway line. Don't worry about it. It's a tiny little reference, <laughs> but it's just meant to be like, there's, there's your book. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so this author wrote, um, also the little Lord Fauntleroy and a little princess oh. and the secret garden was pub- originally published in 1911. Wow. 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 It holds up. Yeah. It's a great story. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, which you talked about a poem being the inspiration for the title, but you have another poem oh, that yes. inspired part of the book as yes. well. Yes. And that poem becomes the epigraph. Um, I don't know if you live where, if you were in a place where the brood X cicadas emerged in 2021, and hopefully you're familiar with them. If, if yes. they are, yeah. they're the 17 year yeah. ones. And when they come up from underground, they, we live in an area that was hit hard with them 17 years ago and just in 2021. And they are such a phenomenon. They come out in the millions. So they, if you're afraid of bugs, it is a terrible time to be alive. I kind of find them fascinating, <laughs> but I had some friends who were just like, they couldn't leave their home. And um, it's, it's cause it's kind of horrifying if you, if you have a problem with bugs, they don't sting or bite, but they are flying around everywhere. They are just covering everything. They will hit you. They will fly into your, fi- they're kind of dumb, I guess, or I don't, I'm not sure. I guess I shouldn't judge their intelligence, but they will, they'll, they'll just fly, <laughs> fling themselves into your face, your body, your car. They're all over the sidewalk. You cannot help but walk on them. And they are deafening. I mean, I love the sound of cicadas, but there are millions of them all at once. And they just are so, they drown out everything. You can hardly hear. So it's kind of this crazy phenomenon. And during that phenomenon, a friend of mine, Kathleen McCleary, who is also a brilliant novelist, during those COVID days and being shut in, she was posting poems on Facebook, original poems. And she wrote this poem called, This is How a Pandemic Ends, Not with a Bang, But with Cicadas. And she posted it on Facebook. And when I read that poem, I just got goosebumps. And I recognized, like, it helped crack open the end of the novel for me. Because, you know, I mentioned the characters all wearing this armor and kind of being guarded. And they, they get to, you know, emerge as their truer selves at the end. And it's very similar to what the cicadas do. They come out and they, first they're in these little crawl, they're crawling. They don't have wings yet. And they, they leave these little amber shells everywhere. They're just these little bug, little hollow shells hanging on branches and tree trunks and everywhere. And I thought, what a gorgeous symbol. And so the book ends in June of 2021 with those Brudex cicadas. And just like the cicadas, all of these characters are leaving those shells behind. Oh, do you want to read the poem? Oh, I would love to. I got it right here. And like I said, this is by Kathleen McCleary, who gave me her gracious permission to use it as my epigraph. And she jokes that now she is finally a published poet. She has published three novels, but now she's published. (laughs) And it's very, it's short. But it goes, we went underground this year, like the cicadas, burrowed deep, huddled against roots, sucking what little sustenance we could from whatever we found. The cicadas sing outside my window now. And I swear the other sound I hear is the crackling of millions of exoskeletons, the shells we grew to harden ourselves against our longing to be touched. And man, those la- that last line just gets me. 
the shells oh, we grew to harden funny. ourselves against our longing to be touched. Yep. Wow. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. We did not have the cicadas in Iowa. Ta-da. But I <laughs> do remember cicadas from some other time. So it must have been as a child in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and there are cicadas every summer, not like the Brood X ones. Like, so they're not yeah. sometimes like this summer is just this lovely summer where you can hear them. It sounds like maracas in the trees. Yes, yeah. But it's not, yeah. yeah. So there's cicadas and, and then I, there's and we have, the cicadas. <laughs> right. We've had those. I'm pretty sure we have some of those in Iowa. Definitely, we've, I've heard them here in Texas. Um, but not the, you know, yeah, not the, <laughs> the overwhelming horde. horde. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of a horror show, but I can't help but be fascinated with them. Yeah. Because I, because I lived through the pandemic, pandemic too. And, and I, I, I'll tell you this time goes, you know, that time went really fast and I don't know why, because I didn't go anywhere to do anything. Because <laughs> I was pretty active before that, and you know, volunteering here and there and stuff, but I couldn't do it. And but I, I don't know. Of course, I tell you this: the older you get, the faster the time goes. Oh, I can. So I know that's true to, already. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It is. So, Katrina, I understand that. Morning in this broken world was chosen as an Amazon first read. Yes. Tell us what that means and how that's going. Oh, that was such an honor and it, and it's kind of a game changer. It was awesome. So, um editors nominate books for this and then the I'm not I don't read on an e-reader. I have nothing against them. I love anything that makes people read and allows people to read more. Um but there it's just not my thing. I think I spend a lot of time on a on a screen writing. And so when I read, I like old school books. So I wasn't familiar with this before, but if you're on an e-reader, you're probably familiar with, if you're um, a prime Amazon prime member or Kindle unlimited on the first of every month, Amazon will release like eight to 10 titles a month before they're being published that you get like the preview read of. So there'll be like one, thriller, one mystery, one historical fiction, one nonfiction, one book club fiction, which is what they call this one. And um, you, if you're, you know, if you have this e-reader, you can pick um, one of those to read in advance for free. So you're reading it a month before it's released. Um, and, and if you're not a prime member, you can buy it for like $4.99 or something like that. Um, and it's, it seems counterintuitive. Like, why are you giving away books for free before they're released? But they know what they're doing. And it meant that by the time September 1 rolled around and the book was officially released, I already had thousands of reviews. And the word of mouth had already, it, it gets uh, that buzz going and gets the, just the, you know, and that word of mouth is invaluable for a book. It is totally invaluable. There's a joke in publishing that, a work of fiction has the same shelf life as a gallon of milk, <laughs> you know, so the more, <laughs> the more you can get that kind of fire started and spreading of like the word or the buzz on the story and get people talking about it, the better off you are. So it was just, it was amazing. I'm so, so grateful. Uh, so things are going really well. And I was just so honored to um, be selected for that. Now, do you as a, as the author, get any compensation for the free ones from from Amazon you do they give you a bonus for just sim simply for being um 
a first reads pick. So you get a little bonus that helps make up for some of that freeness. And then anybody, <laughs> anyone who buys one for the four ninety nine, dollars um, you do get royalties off of that as well. Oh, that's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah. I, um, I forget about, you know, I am a prime member and I do have an e-reader and I forget to get the books. Yeah. And, um, I think I probably get an email about it that goes in with yes. all my other emails same. that I never look same, at. Same. But now I'm like, oh, this is cool. I should, I should look into this. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, part of the, part of it for me is that I barely have time to oh, read anything other than what I'm doing for my yeah. show. So, <laughs> which one of the, you know, the, the perks of doing the show, of course, is all the free books I get. Yeah. <laughs> That's an awesome perk. <laughs> I love books. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> I love books. Well, Katrina, we're about out of time. Okay. This has been and lovely. It's, it's, it has been. And um, do you have any, like, words of advice for a would-be author? I would say persist, persist, persist. Um, you're going to hear no a lot. There will be all kinds of obstacles thrown up in your path. There's lots of rejection, and if this is something you want to do, you just have to know those obstacles are coming, those no's are coming, and just keep going. That if this is really what you want to do, you cannot let anything stop you. Oh, very good. That, very good. <laughs> and Caroline, do you have some closing words for us today? Yeah. We are all in our own boat in this sea of life, that friends and family are a true blessing. Oh, yes, indeed. Amen to that. <laughs> well, thank you, Katrina, for being with us. I enjoyed your book. And um, when I have time for some free reading, I'm going to check out some of your oh, others. Thank you so much, both <laughs> yeah. of you, Monica and Caroline. This was a real pleasure. Thank you. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye-bye, everyone. Have a good day.